That was so overwhelming. Um, thank you to all of our youth leaders, um, all of you who come out on Thursdays and Sundays and invest in our youth, the ones that just take out our youth, the ones who realize that youth is not just some guy's job to be able to raise and talk about Jesus, but a church has a responsibility to pour Jesus into them. And as I was giving thanks for that in my mind as I was worshiping, I was just thinking that tomorrow is going to be an absolute rager of a party. So I hope that you're all able to make it. Having two churches come together, we're spoiled is what I was thinking. We're going to be having um, the Redeemer Point worship team joining with our worship team. Instead of there being one message, we're going to split the devotion and Daniel is going to preach about the second advent and I'm going to preach about the first advent of Christ. Um, it is just going to be an explosion. I can't believe we've gotten to the end of a year where we've been able to send out another church. This one is still thriving over here. We've had 10 different people fill this pulpit this summer, multiple worship teams, now a youth worship team. God has just been so good to us. So um, my heart is just too filled with thanks to begin. So let me just give thanks. Um, God, you've been ridiculously good to us. Uh, God, you've given us so much more than we deserve. We deserve hell. You've given us heaven. You've given us grace. And you've showered us with an abundance. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So... Remember the famous passage when the young ruler came up to Jesus and Jesus was standing in a big crowd and he tries to test Jesus and he asks him this question and it was a question that would be asked all the time of great rabbis during that time. Basically it was, tell me the whole law but bake it down into one commandment. It was sort of the way that someone would test the wisdom of an up-and-coming rabbi. His question was not abnormal. If you read through ancient Jewish literature, you will see that people ask that question quite often. Um, so they, they would either want to test like some new hotshot, or there would be one rabbinical school would want to assert their dominance over another rabbinical school and show that they had the better rabbi. And it was sort of a turf war, kind of like a Hebrew West Side story, if you will, if that's what you can, if I could take you in context to be there. So the, the man walks up to Jesus, and think about what he was asking. Um, we're not talking just the Ten Commandments here. He was, he was saying, out of the 613 commandments, and then add all the commandments from the Mishnah and the Gomorrah and all of the years of rabbinic commentary, the traditions of the elders that have begun to be held and just as high as scripture, distill all that down and tell me the one thing that's most important. In modern day language, it was like, hey Jesus, could you take all of the Bible, all of sacred teaching and just bottom line me here? And just give me the great commandments so I can get the Cliff Notes version. And Jesus, being Jesus, always had the perfect answer, right? That was probably what convinced me as I started reading the scriptures that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. The way that he could answer any question was just, it had to be of God. And he said that there's two commandments, but they're so connected that we're actually going to just look at them as one commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so far in this series, we've talked a lot about what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, 
and strength. The first message was worshiping fully. Then we talked about giving and receiving from a heart of grace and gratitude rather than a heart of obligation or reciprocation. We talked about savoring Christ and finding our contentment in him so that we can be content in Christ rather than feeling like we're giving from a deficit or just having that itch that you can't scratch. This morning's message is going to be more about loving your neighbor as yourself. And tomorrow night, we are going to focus on the big sin on the number one, the greatest truth. I've been too much of a Calvinist to be able to preach these messages without saying this, so I can't wait to preach on the fact that we can only love because he first loved us. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow is the fact that we're loved completely because he first loved us. We were not the first mover, the second mover, the any mover. He moved towards us and loved us, and that's why we're able to love. So as a total tangent, by the end of this series, if you have not heard God loves you at least a million times, then somebody's missed something. So God loved you. That's what we celebrate when we light these candles for the Advent. He loved you, past tense. God loves you. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. It tells us in the book of Hebrews. And God longs to love you for all eternity. So if you can take away anything from today, if you are in Christ, God loves you. And if you have not come to know Christ, you have every opportunity to know that saving life. He is here this morning. He is calling you by name. If you begin a relationship with him, it's not because you called his name. It's because he's calling yours and he's calling it right now. And you have the opportunity to receive him and to know him. But I digress. As we approach this final message in the Advent Conspiracy, I want to I be clear that that, does, that didn't come easy. That cost God everything. And I want to be clear that being able to love all, like we're going to preach on today, is not something easy. It's something that takes conspiracy-level madness to be able to happen. So just at the heart, uh, to, to have a heart to be able to love all, I want to show you what a miracle it is. It tells us that our hearts were dead in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Um, dead people don't love things. Your heart was dead before he regenerated it. It tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9 that our heart's sneaky deceptive. That even when we think we know it, we still don't know it. We had to be given the Sermon on the Mount because our hearts are so weird that even when it looks like we're doing the right thing, we sometimes just have goofiness going on in our heart. And that's why Jesus would just constantly say, you've heard it said but I say to you, I'm going after your heart, man. I'm not going after just your conformity. So listen, it is not an automatic to be able to love all. The scriptures are quite clear on that. I mean, think of all the times that the Jewish leaders wanted to go after Jesus for making the Gentiles equal. Times like John chapter 5 or John chapter 8 or all of John 13 through 21. The last nine chapters of John are all about wanting to crucify Jesus. And ultimately, they did crucify him because they did not understand this call to love all. Think of the disdain for the Samaritans. 
the way that they were so surprised that Jesus would talk to a woman in John chapter 4, or the way that they wanted to call down fire on them for not letting him take a shortcut through their village. Think of Mary pouring out her heart, um, not Mary, the mother of God, the other Mary, and pouring the expensive bottle of nard on the feet of Jesus and worshiping and the people in the room judging her for her worship. It's not easy to love all, is it? I mean, think about us, people who it may be difficult to love. Do you you find it easy pushing, uh, do you find it easy loving people who are pushing for things on the other side of the political aisle? Do you find it easy to to love people who are pushing for same-sex marriage or redefining gender or pushing liberal agendas? Do you find it easy or even possible to love that person? Think about it on a smaller level, that family member that you will likely run into at Christmas dinner this year, or even tougher, that family member who will keep you from going to Christmas dinner this year because you don't want to be in their presence. Or let's think about it on a funny level. That person in front of you in the 12 items or less that clearly puts 19 items on the conveyor belt Is it easy to be loving towards that person? I'm being serious, because when I'm behind that person, I have a whole conversation in my head, and I think I know the ins and outs of that person, and I have judged every sense of their morality and how they live their life. I'm like, okay, I get it. You're too important to wait online like us common schlubs, and you're better than everybody else, and the places you have to go are more important, and the people you have to be with are more important, so you can't obviously count to 12, but you probably wear a monocle because you're so stuffy, and you're so bougie, and, like, and I start to get like, can you love that person? Like, really? We're called to love all. And what I'm saying is it takes love on part of the conspiracy to be able to love all, to be able to love the person that just clearly ignores the 12 items or less and starts stocking up for the apocalypse in front of you with mad cases of water and they look like they're just one of those doomsday preppers on your, well, and then they act like they don't notice. To be able to love that person, it takes something supernatural. So in Luke 2, if you want to turn there, it will also be projected up behind me. Um, Simeon says something really, really um, just whoa level about Jesus. He he says in verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared the presence of all your peoples. Now listen, here's where it comes. A light for the Gentiles of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for the people Israel. So up to this point, there's a very regular thing going on. We have two Jewish parents who are bringing their Jewish child to the Jewish temple, and they're offering Jewish sacrifices according to the Jewish law and the Jewish customs, and and they hand their baby to this Jewish man. And I'm telling you, this statement might be something you read right past without much thought, but when he busted out a light to the Gentiles... It must have been like a record scratching in the background. I mean, think about it. He's like, this baby is going to be a light to the Gentiles. It must have been like, what? Kind of like that. I mean, it, it had to be, <laughs> yeah, like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? 
and it doesn't record them saying anything, but I'm sure they must have been like, wait, wait, I'm tracking with you on this whole Messiah thing. This is cool. Wait, light to the, to the Gentiles. This is nuts. This Jewish man holding the Jewish Messiah foretold that the Jewish scriptures in the Jewish temple, that this was a hope for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were supposed to be the bad guys at the time. Think about this. Gentile converts were not even allowed to be near enough to hear what was being said or to see this. There was an outer court that separated them from being able to approach the holy place. There was a literal wall that kept them away from here. And the closest that they could come was a place called the court of the Gentiles. And if they violated that, then they tried to come into the Jewish court if you read the latter chapters in Acts, the posse that was with Paul, you'll realize that was punishable by death. So they wouldn't have even been able to hear this good news that Simeon was proclaiming. And the people that did hear it were probably like, what on earth like that is going on? You are killing it back there. Thank you. So <laughs> Now you're having a little bit too much fun. <laughs> so does this mean that he did not come to be the Messiah for the Jewish people, and not at all. Um, we worship the Jewish Messiah, and when Jewish people embrace their Messiah, it is beautiful. I can tell you, my first degree is in Jewish studies, and when I've seen Jewish people be able to look through the scriptures and the veil be taken off and say, wow, this was, this was Jesus the whole time. There's something that's just like awe-inspiring when you're, when you're around and, and you get to see that. But it shows us that something bigger must be going on. This rescue plan is about to take a twist. And then Matthew chapter 4, listen to this. He says something weird. You can turn there if you like. In verses 12 through 17. It says that when he had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that it was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is the Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the what? The Galilee of the Gentiles. And the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those in the region of the shadow of death on them, a light has dawn. So it's interesting. Matthew is using one of our favorite Christmas passages. You never go at Christmas without hearing Isaiah 9 preached, right? Isaiah 9 is just Christmas. Um, it, it's, it's necessary. So we think of it as a Christmas passage, but typically when we think of Isaiah 9, we think of the Christmas verses. And why not? They're beautiful. We think of these two in verses 6 and 7. For us, a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. And on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this forth evermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. That's what's on your Christmas card. 
That's what's hanging on your ornaments. So nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be dogging on that, so don't worry. Like, where is he going with that? Do I need to go take down my ornaments when I get home? They're beautiful verses. But the interesting part is even though that is one of the most Christmassy passages, prophecies in the Old Testament, um, the apostles seem to quote verses 1 and 2 more often when they're quoting this passage. Um, so, so they don't, they take a little something different from the Christmas passage. And this is talking about a king that was going to come and bring in a kingdom. And a big part of that kingdom would be known by its ability to love all. As Tim Keller has said, that when Jesus announced the kingdom, he was turning everything upside down. Those who thought that they were in were out. Those who thought that they couldn't be in were now invited to be in. Those who thought that they were the gatekeepers were finding out that Jesus is the one true gate. And those who acted like gatekeepers were creating heavy burdens that kept people out while Jesus was saying, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and come on in to my kingdom, and I'll give you rest. So this would have been an unusual promise to the Jewish people at the time. Gods were usually seen as regional to a specific culture, and the Jews were not treated well by most of the surrounding nations. The other nations had shown very little interest in the God of the Jews, and there were many who were waiting for this Messiah to come and just destroy all those who had oppressed them for all these years. Not to love them, not to come and be the light to them. This promise is not going the way that it's supposed to be going. And one of the most famous Christmas passages that I just read from, Isaiah chapter 9, says that he would be a light in the darkest of areas, meaning that he would come and love the most unlovable. Tangent, who is that most unlovable person in your life? Because that's where Jesus said that he was going. That's what the Christmas promise said that he was doing. He said, I'm going to go find a region with the darkest, most unlovable most unworthy, most uninterested people, and I'm going to go and invest my heart into them. In order to carry out this rescue mission, he had to go to the darkest of places. That's why in verses 1 and 2 are always covered as the Christmas promise. That's why the apostles say, hey, not only is he going to be awesome, He's going to be awesome to the most undeserving people. And if you think that you're deserving, then you probably are not deserving. But those who are able to understand that they're not deserving are on the way to realize that he is worthy. But Marcy and I, we, we actually thought that we had this call. We, we went out to plant a church in Boulder, Colorado, which is known as the graveyard of churches in, the, in, in America. Um, there have been like 35 failed church plants over the period of just a couple of years when we had gone there, and there is just darkness. And when I say darkness, like darkness, like, like I can't even explain. And, man, it, it chewed me up. Like, when it says that Jesus went into the land of darkness, appreciate this. I got to see something that was nowhere near as oppressive, and it chewed me up. Even church planting here at times I'm just like, man, this is hard soil. I tell people about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, so what? This is hard soil around here. But to love all, Jesus had to go to the people no one would, to the places that no one would, so that he was able to love the people that no one would. And that's what the gospel still does for us. Think through Ephesians 
2, 1 through 8, it says that you were dead, you were an enemy, you had enmity against God, that you followed the prince of the power of the air, and it was when you were dead in your transgressions that we had that beautiful, but God, being rich in grace and mercy, he came and redeemed you. So in our remaining time, let me show you how he opened the door to love all. Turn to Ephesians 2, and this will be my final point here this morning. I'm so excited about this. This is so cool. I hope you guys are excited about this. And while I'm turning there, let me just tell you, God loves you. God loves Can I hear you guys just repeat, God loves me? Amen. Amen. If you're going to a church where you're not regularly reminded of the love of God, there is an issue. God loves you. You. So look what's being said in Ephesians 2, starting at 11. It says, remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. That word keeps popping up, right? Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the hands of the flesh. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Man, that is deep. Look what's being said about you who are standing on the other side of the wall. It says that you're Gentiles in the flesh. You are called the uncircumcision, which I'm not going to get into for time's sake, but it's not a compliment. Um, we were called separated. We're called alienated. We were um, referred to as strangers to God's promise and cut off from his covenant. And then the last indictment, golly, is this just the opposite of what we rejoice about right now. It says, you are with no hope in this world. But then in verse 14, we have what I like to refer to as one of the beautiful buts in Ephesians. It says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create for himself one new man in the place of two, making peace. So back in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So guess what? You who are once far off and without hope have been given hope, and you've been brought near. Um, because of the blood of Christ, you who were once called a stranger can now be called a friend of God. Because of Christ's love, you who were once far off are fully loved. That's, what we're all, that's all we're going to preach on tomorrow is you are fully loved. God loves you. That's why he started this rescue mission. That's why he came here is because God loves you. Get that, brothers and sisters. You are fully loved. So how did he do it? According to verses 14 through 17 that I just read, he broke down the dividing wall. That wall that used to say, hey, you stay over here. You be on this side of the wall. All of glory is happening on this side of the wall. All of God's presence is happening on this side of the wall. But you stay on this wall. You're stuck. And then God just took the wall and he was like, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to break it. I love throwing things. I'm sorry. But he destroyed it in his flesh. So do you understand this? 
The reality of this is now you are fully loved. God loves you. And before I get into some application to close, I want to show you what this has to do with Christmas. How does it say that he broke down the dividing wall in verse 14? It says that it was in his flesh. To break down the dividing wall of our sin, he had to become like us in every way. That's why we have the miracle of the incarnation that we celebrate this time of year. That's the theological implication of what's happening right now. In order to break down that wall that separated you, he had to become like you and he had to be born like you and be like you in every single way. You could not have Easter without Christmas is what that means. Because he had to be flesh in order to break down the dividing wall of hostility, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.14, in his flesh and with his flesh being broken. So what that's saying, what we celebrate each week in communion, when we break this bread, this is saying that this used to be a dividing wall. And Jesus... When his body was on the cross, he broke it, and he broke down that dividing wall. And when he took that cup and he poured it out, he poured out his blood saying, there is no more dividing wall anymore. You have received this. You have received Christ. There is no dividing wall. You can taste of the fact that the wall has been destroyed when Jesus destroyed his flesh. So breaking down the dividing wall... He enabled us to be fully loved. More on that tomorrow. But I'm not trying to be overly political. I do need to say this. We talk so much about building walls. It's really nice at this time of year to talk about a Messiah that destroys them. Um, again, not to get overly political, but oh, I get way more excited about breaking down walls than building them. And no, I don't want to argue with you about that after the service. If you come up and argue with me about that, you missed the point of today's message. By breaking down the dividing wall, he enabled us to love all, but it had to be in his flesh. So it had to be the incarnation. So some practical ways to love all as we close. One, receive his love. You cannot give away something you haven't received. People who drink deeply of his love will be people that are able to love others. A little litmus test, those who receive his love tend to be people of grace. I've never met a miser who basks in the love of God. Um, love and grace are supposed to go hand in hand. And our Savior, uh, the character of love and grace just come together so much that John just had to tell you about it in John 1.14 when grace and truth was, was the definition and people who spend time with him exude that grace. I'm going to just tell you, people that spend time with Jesus smell like Jesus. There's times when visitors come in here and I don't know who they are and it's their first time and they come over and they meet me and I don't know their previous history. I don't know where they've gone to church but I'm God, you smell like Jesus, and I can just tell you've been in his throne. There are members here, many of them, many of them. I'm looking out at so many of you. I'm so proud to call this my church. I love you. I, I smell Jesus when I smell you guys. I'm able to stand up here, and why I haven't come and just shut up and sat down yet is because I get to sit here 
and smell the fragrance of Christ. To those who be with him, smell like him. Um, the second would be, be a person who breaks down dividing walls. There's a few kind of people out there. There's people who build walls through bigotry, hatred, racism, ignorance, unkindness, bitterness. I could continue. There's people who act like the wall isn't there. That's ignorance. There's people who see the wall. These are my favorite. Churches are filled with these people. We see the wall. We point it out. We complain about it publicly on Facebook. We scream about how we need authentic community, but you never lift a finger to break down the dividing wall. <clears throat> and there's those that see walls that divide and keep people from being able to enjoy authentic community, and they have the courage to say, I'm going to risk being uncomfortable to break down a dividing wall and be able to have a place where people have full access to the love of God. Like Jesus did. Love others enough to break down man-made walls. Jesus destroyed the only wall that mattered. Don't allow the church to build ones that shouldn't exist. The third point is let his spirit produce spiritual fruit if you want to learn how to love people fully. Let me show you some spiritual fruit that came out of the, the Advent. This is so cool. This is, this is worth the price of admission right here, folks. The fruit of the spirit <clears throat> was just demonstrated all over the first Advent. First, we have love. It was love that caused God to send his son to be our secret agent, John three sixteen. for he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, would have eternal life. Joy is the next fruit of the spirit. Look at the genuine joy in Matthew 2.10 where it says that the Magi, when they, received, when they saw him, they were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Joyful people tend to be lovers. Peace. There's an angelic pronouncement of peace to all of God's people in John 2.14. Glory to God and peace to all whom he is pleased. Patience. Man, Anna and Simeon would go up to the temple day by day for decades because they were given a promise that they would not pass until they received that Messiah. Kindness. This child shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Goodness, the angel proclaimed that the angel in the womb of Mary would protect the weak and stand up for the righteous in Luke 1, 52 in the Magnificat. Faithfulness, there was a promise in Hosea 6, 2, and 3 that his coming was as sure as the sun would rise tomorrow and as sure as the rain would water the crops. That's how sure we could be of the faithful advent of our Lord. Gentleness, one of my favorite promises in Scripture. A bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out, which means he sees you. You who have a smoldering wick out there, you are like, man, fantasy. He sees you. Isn't that good news today? Just the fact that he sees you, he knows. He's not going to let that wick go out. He's going to fan that into flame. It's a promise that you can hang on to. And then self-control. At any point, he could have chosen any other way. He even said it in the garden. He said, you know what? I could call a legion of angels down right now and whoop you all. But instead, I'm going to do what is necessary to fulfill what my Father has called me to. And as each year passes... Number four, may he increase and you decrease. As I get older, if I increase, I love less and I love fewer. But with each passing year, if he increases, I become less. And I'm able to love more and I'm free to love all as a result. And the last one, 
remember, which we'll look at tomorrow, that you were only able to love because God first loved you. People who remember that are loved and think about the fact that they are loved and ruminate on the fact that they are loved and think about it often. They are the people who are able to love others. Let me hear you say God loves you. God loves you. And it's one of the reasons that we partake of this meal each Sunday to remember that God loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us so much that you came in flesh so your flesh could be broken so that you could break down the dividing wall of hostility and be able to give us complete access before your throne of grace. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a meal called communion. And I don't need to explain much about it because Ephesians 2 explained what we're doing. What we're celebrating when we partake of the cracker is that his body was broken for you. It was broken for the forgiveness of your sins and to be able to give you access to him. You guys can come up and distribute the elements now. And we celebrate when we take the juice that his blood was poured out for the full and complete remission of sins. We ask you not to take of this lightly. Reflect. If you don't know Jesus, we invite you right now to know him as Lord and Savior. But if you don't know him, please abstain because we don't want this to be an empty ritual for you. This is for those who are the children of God who have called upon him by name. If you have limited mobility, just raise your hand and somebody will bring it to you. Um, and uh, we invite you to just partake as you come up. You need no invitation. This is your invitation. Let me just thank the Lord again. Thank you for your body broken, for your blood shed. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone needs prayer, these people are up here to pray with you, and they would love to pray with you.